Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope that you're all doing well and thank you once again for taking the time to tune into the show and inviting us into your lives to talk all things Formula One. Now, of course, we are in a bit of a break, a bit of an interlull period now as the F1 season is starting to ramp up. We had a pseudo triple header, which turned out to be more of a double header because of what went down at Imola. Of course, our thoughts are very much with all those still affected by what's going on in that region. But whilst we're in a bit of a break now between the Spanish Grand Prix and the Canadian Grand Prix coming up this time next weekend, we thought we'd do an episode to talk about the one team that has really been making the headlines for their incredible progress and the potential that they still have to finally be a midfield team that can really break into the upper echelons of the F1 grid and maybe challenge for a world championship as well. Before we get into all of that, of course, I just want to ask once again for your continuous support and appreciation for that support. I know you guys listen to this show, keep going, say, oh, Ad, why you keep asking us about this all the time? You keep asking us support. But this is what we do as content creators. We always like to ask for your support, and we really appreciate you giving it. So, of course, if you watch this podcast on YouTube, like the video, subscribe to the channel if you are new, and don't forget to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform for all of you wonderful listeners on our audio platforms. But without further ado, talking about this episode with Aston Martin, of course, Honda as well, coming back in 2026, we have F1 journalist for The Athletic, no less, Luke Smith. Luke, first of all, thank you so much for coming on this show. I really appreciate you giving up your time to talk to us about Formula One. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, it's, uh, as you touched on, a really busy start to the season. And it's quite nice to have these kind of uh, more fallow periods, I guess, where there's even just like a week without a race. And I know fans want to be watching as much action as they can all the time. But um, yeah, it's been a pretty intense start to the year. So I think this nine day stretch I've got at home is the longest until the summer break. So I'm happy to make the most of it. And uh, yeah, good to good to chat about some Formula One. And uh, yeah, very interesting story with Aston definitely on the rise. Absolutely. And we've had a few F1 journalists like yourself on this show. And I think the one consistent theme that we get is how busy you wonderful people are. And obviously, you know, you and I are of a similar age. And I think what we remember growing up was you know, finding out all the latest in F1 from magazines like the Autosport magazine or F1 Racing magazine. Nowadays, 
all the information that we are privy to as F1 fans are at the touch of a button on whatever social media platform you go on to or YouTube channel. You can't avoid F1 news now. And obviously it takes a massive strain and, and an intense workload on journalists like yourself. Are you guys the unsung heroes of the F1 world in terms of the media side of things? Um, I probably, I maybe wouldn't go that far to be honest, but I think that we, um, yeah, like we, we work hard and we do no, 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 um, yeah, can't, can't deny that at all. Like, and it is, it's a very, it is a very enjoyable profession. Don't get me wrong. And it's a great way of life. And I love the fact that we can go to these races and we can be on the inside basically of everything going on. And the purpose of that is really to keep fans up to date, keep everyone sort of primed on what is happening. And I think that, yeah, it's definitely interesting how media has shifted over the past, I guess, or maybe 10 years, especially, but it seems to be, yeah, moving at a, an even quicker pace nowadays. And I think that we're seeing sort of rise of maybe like influencers and content creators and stuff like that. And that's really fantastic in terms of the overall sort of pool that F1 has in terms of its media content and everything. But um, yeah, ultimately I think we're, yeah, I, I was having this chat with someone last night, actually. Like, I'm very much a, a journalist first who just so happens to be writing about Formula One as opposed to a Formula One journalist, if that makes sense. And I, I do all the sports pieces. But it's, uh, yeah, maybe we wouldn't go as far as Unsung Heroes, but we uh, definitely, it's it's definitely one of those jobs where it's like you, you can try and take days off and even then something might happen and then you've got to drop everything and and go, go for it with a story. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating place to work, I must say. It's a really really enjoyable um I, I love it the job honestly it's uh, yeah a real real privilege to be part of the, part of the circus going around the world I think that's another thing that we get a lot as well is how upbeat everybody is that works in that similar capacity and and as you, as you said you know you're a journalist by trade but also a fan as well and I think that makes it so much easier and obviously you might not say young sung hero I think I will purely because if it <laughs> isn't for the work that you guys do all across uh, the F1 world half of us out there making content wouldn't have much to talk about because we wouldn't be aware of what's going on in the inside F1 circus all around. Um, but of course, Luke, before we get in uh, talking about Aston Martin, every time we have a new guest on this show, we have an icebreaker question. And this question in particular allows us to sort of dive into the F1 mind and find out a little bit more regarding your interest regarding the cars and circuits. So I'm going to throw it at you and see what we get back. If I was to give you any F1 car in history and you could drive it around any circuit in the world doesn't have to be an F1 circuit it could be your local car track if you like to and don't worry about learning how to drive it you are the absolute expert of this car what car are you driving and where are we driving it Oof. uh I think I would take the See, I love some of the recent Mercedes. The um, I think the the seventeen Mercedes that was the last one without the halo. And don't get me wrong, the halo is fantastic and very important. But without the halo, but with the big wheels and everything, that looks absolutely amazing. And uh, the twenty twenty Merc as well was an absolute absolute um, machine as well. But I think that I think purely for the the added sound and everything like that, you have got to go for uh, an F two thousand and four. I think the Ferrari. I think that was just uh, really F one at its peak in terms of uh, an absolutely rapid car. It was light, nimble. The V10 sound as well. I, I would, yeah, I think take that. And uh, for a track, I think it has to be Spa. Spa is my absolute favourite Formula One track. It's uh, somewhere I love to go to. I used to go twice a year. I would go for the World Endurance Championship race as well. Um, 
F1's expanding calendar means I can only go once a year now for the F1, but that's still an absolute honour. So it's, uh, yeah, I think I would, that's what I'd do. That to me is a real mix of classic car, classic track, just a perfect combination. Yeah, I absolutely love that answer because Spa is one of my favourite circuits. It was the first circuit I ever want to watch, uh, went to watch a race live many hmm. years ago. Um, it wasn't quite 2004, I mean, although I do admit that was my favourite Ferrari in particular, but uh in 2001 yeah that was a pretty good year for Ferrari as well so uh, mm. yeah pretty good answer I like that very much um I mean talking about the F1 Canada from a journalist perspective now we have obviously 23 races on the Canada even though we're not going to be getting 20 23 races because of uh, a couple of races having to pull out for different reasons is it how much more is the strain of being an F1 journalist uh, and I say strain relatively speaking obviously you know it's, it's a dream job but how much more intense is the role now compared to what you would have imagined it would have been like uh, back when we were growing up watching F1 where there were only about two-thirds of the races on the Canada compared to what we have now? Yeah I think that's a, a very good point and it's also the length of the season so I remember um, 2007 for example that when that was way before I was working in F1 I was still um, still very much a fan uh, that season finished, I think, middle of October, I want to say. And then things didn't start up again until March. And now it is that we run right the way to the very end of November. And that's only really a new thing as well. And everyone's saying, oh, it's so good. We don't race in December anymore. And it's like, that's, yeah, you look back at a couple of the COVID years and that was obviously such a unique period in time, but it was very intense because you would finish the season middle of December and then you kind of got a bit of time to recuperate, get through Christmas and then you're into January and you're talking about car launches. Cars are launching early Feb. February, we're going testing and then we're back racing again. So there wasn't really any any stop. Um, and I think that obviously for the, the teams and the people who are working these mammoth shifts, obviously for the teams and the people who are working these mammoth shifts at the track, they're obviously the ones who are, um, yeah, they're really, I think, feeling that strain more of this calendar. Um, but yeah, from a journalist point of view, I think it is it's something that I think everyone's conscious of. It's like the idea of, um, yeah, the, the idea, I think, of what maybe people had working in F1 compared to what it actually is, is maybe a little bit different now. But it's, um, yeah, it is still a, a, a fantastic job. And I think it is, it's just one of those things where, like, sometimes there's maybe a misconception and sometimes people are like, oh, you fly business class everywhere and you get like these lovely hotels and lovely meals. And it's, that's, that's not the reality of it. It's but yeah, we all fly economy and we're, we're staying in fine hotels, but it's like, it's nothing like not the Ritz or anything like that. So it's um yeah, it's a funny one. Um, I think there is just a, maybe again, coming back to your point about unsung heroes, it's maybe sort of a bit of a misconception sometimes about what our job actually is and the work we do, because uh, they are very, very long days. Like a race weekend is typically sort of maybe four 12 hour days in a row in terms of us being at the track and doing stuff and working through stuff. So it's uh, a lot to do, but um, yeah, the calendar, I think look, that's how it is now. And I hope that they realize this is really, we're at the limit now and we can't really go too far beyond that. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting interesting way that f1 has gone and i think it's gonna be interesting going forward to see whether that impacts maybe career longevity whether people are saying look i only want to do f1 for 10 years instead of 20 years and are we going to see fewer f1 lifers because it's not no longer a 16 17 18 race season it's so much more than that but um but yeah but ultimately look f1 has gone this, in this direction we know the benefits of that it's great that we've got so many countries wanting to host f1 so it's just about finding that trade-off really between what is good for the sport commercially and in terms of the brand awareness and everything like that 
versus the human cost as well of people working in F1. Absolutely. And, you know, we're in an era now where F1 is going through an efficiency process where with the cost cap and, you know, teams as a result of that are having to try and find ways to not only do what they were doing before, but with less. But if, if anything, the output has to be greater now. The demand is greater because we're going to more circuits. Sprint races are on the rise and I don't see F1 stopping where they are right now i can see, very much see it being a well introducing a few more sprint races trying to get as much as they possibly can to the point where that question are we at breaking point already which i think in some fairness we kind of are almost already that's going to become a serious issue and it's all through the f1 paddock it's not just the journalist side it's going to be the, the men and women and every everyone else that works within the f1 team so i mean as a fan we only see so much of that but i think even when regular fans like myself can see that this is an issue i think that is a question that f1 really has to consider how much can we make from this sport before we get into a position as you said where we start losing people that were working in the sport that were considered f1 lifers after only 10 years i mean on the content scene we have seen a few people that i've spoken to that used to work in F1 teams because of the demand either go elsewhere or become content creators. And it's a new Mm. niche altogether in that respect. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's also when you see other championships, like, um, I know like an IndyCar season, for example, when that's done, that runs March to September and they have like, they have a really intense period. Don't get me wrong. And like, particularly around May they're I think they're pretty much doing something every week for like six weeks in a row, but yeah, Formula E, Again, I was having a chat with um, a friend who works in Formula E last night and she was saying that as of July, it's like, oh, we're done then for like four four months or so. And it is very different in terms of how championships are structured. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be be something we only really see the impact of, I think, down the line. But I think that there are changing attitudes within F1 and particularly with the teams as well, because they are recognising the tolls that the calendar is taking and they don't want it to be that, they have someone join and then within three years they're like oh it's like way too much like, i can't do all this traveling and everything so that's where stuff like staff rotation that's where like a greater focus on mental health and well-being all come into play so i think that teams are aware of this challenge and i think that it is something that everyone in the sport is very very mindful of so it's um yeah i think it's going to be something we only maybe see down the line the true impact of it but i'm uh quietly hopeful i think that people will do the right thing for their for themselves basically and teams will look after people because that's really the most important thing I think yeah and in fairness to Formula One I think you know through the pandemic and obviously what we saw at Imola when push comes to shove and F1 needs to do the right thing they often do very hastily so obviously fingers crossed and from previous experience we can expect something similar if the uh, calendar gets a bit too intense moving on to the topic at hand Aston Martin so far this season I don't think many of us even those the hardest uh, or most dedicated Aston Martin fans could have imagined that they would be fighting the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari and in some respects beating them uh, on on that level playing field at this point in time how how could you how could you sum up Aston Martin's progress in 2023 has it surprised you uh, compared to a few of the other teams yeah it has it surprised me it surprised I think everyone on F1, it's surprised Aston Martin, it's surprised Fernando Alonso. It's gone, I think, way beyond what they were anticipating. I think they've clearly been a team on the rise. I think that we saw last year the development they made with that car through the season to go from being one of the slowest teams to probably fifth or sixth quickest easily by the end of the year, even if they only end up seventh in the championship. 
I think that really did indicate the trajectory that they were on. And then I think we've seen this year, that's just really gone up a, a notch. Like we knew coming into this year that, okay, signing Alonso and with the new factory and everything was pointing towards another step forward. But I think most of us were expecting that ceiling to be probably top of the midfield, like maybe fourth fastest. That would kind of be where it's at because the notion has been for so long that the big three of Red Bull, Mercedes and Ferrari are so far ahead of everyone that it's going to take years, years, years to try and catch that up. And then over the winter, Aston Martin have done that in, in one go. They've taken this huge jump to really for the best part of the start of the season, be the second quickest team on race days, only trading Red Bull, who are obviously just another league compared to everyone else right now. And it's, um, yeah, I think it's been, it's been really, um, it's been fascinating to see a team take such a step forward and maybe tear up the, um, tear up the, the, the playbook in terms of how do you get a team from middle of the grid to the front, because they've done it all in what, a couple of years basically it feels like so it's uh yeah it's been a very impressive year for them i think it surprised everybody and you talk to people in that team you talk to fernando alonso and it is kind of uh an idea of yeah we knew we were on something good here but like this is just another level to what was anticipated yeah absolutely and i think you know journalists like yourself and any hardened listeners that you know write, read everything that comes their way in terms of F1 media, they know the inside track of what's going on at Aston Martin, the great people that are involved in that team, the facilities, the investment, the drivers to a degree as well. If you could pinpoint one particular area as to how Aston Martin have managed to go from, as you say, a P7 from 2022, when arguably they had the fifth or sixth fastest car by the end of it, all the way to a point where they were leading the best of the rest championship behind Red Bull, who are on another level. What would you narrow that down to in, in terms of Aston Martin's progress? How how can we quantify that? I think I think a lot of it does come down to hiring the right people. I think that you look at the signing of people like Dan Fallows. I think that's a, been an absolutely huge asset to the team. I think he's brought the not only the, the quality and talent that he undeniably has, but also the know-how of how to be with a championship winning team, how to make championship winning cards. Like that is such a valuable asset, I think, to have. So I think the right people, that's definitely been a big thing for them. I think that they've um they've I mean the other thing is they've clearly invested huge money. Like that's that's the other thing. We've got to remember in all this Lawrence Stroll made very clear when he bought the team, I want to turn this into a championship winning squad. And he's thrown a lot of money at it. And that I think is something that we can't lose sight of so it's an underdog story in some ways but it is also the idea of that this is always kind of I think inevitable in one way it's just the speed with which it's been done that has been so impressive and I think the style in which they've executed it all has been yeah really really incredible so um yeah I think that you look at you look at the people and I think also just the approach they've taken to designing the car as well it's not kind of been they they've not try to be maybe too clever with things or try to be too sort of confident in their own way of doing things like they've been taking the mercedes um rear end of the car as as part of the technical agreement they've got there for for some time and they've not detracted from that that will change when honda comes in but they're they're sort of happy to tick along with that so it kind of shows that they're not they're not gonna say tear up their own playbook and do something completely different just for the sake of it, just because they say, well, no, we have to do it our way. So I think, yeah, it's been a mix of that. The right people, I think a very sensible approach to designing the car and a 
just a fantastic driver and Fernando Alonso as well. He has really got the most out of that car. He's clearly loving life in Formula One right now, which is really, really cool to see. So I think that, yeah, it's all been all those factors together have helped make this huge step forward. I mean, you mentioned Dan Fallows, who I think has been a very underrated appointment. And I know at the time, Red Bull fought tooth and nail to prevent him from joining Aston Martin and even try to extend that gardening leave period that we often hear about a lot, uh, even longer than actually was. Um, In isolation, how critical has Dan Fallows' impact at the team been? Because we've seen a lot of people as well that still exist at the team, like Andy Green, for example. Um, And of course, Martin Whitmarsh has come back in a CEO capacity in the team. And obviously, Mike Crack as well. But in terms of the design, Dan Fallows seems to have been a very critical appointment. I mean, how, how important has he been to this rise of Aston Martin? Oh, massively, massively. I think that... The combination of him, um, Tom McCulloch and uh, Eric Blandown together, I think that is a really, that's a very, very strong design team they've got there. And I think that it's a good way of showing how you can make a very well balanced uh, sort of design and, and team that looks after the car in a way that maybe some other teams might look at and say, well, this is our way to it. We talk about structures, McLaren, they previously said having a three person design team is just not the way to go. And we need one person. And now they've gone back on that and said, no, it's not a one person job. Got rid of James Key and brought in this three person team that's um, in place from the start of next year. So it's um, there are different ways to do things. But I think that they've um, they've got a really good balance, I think, between those those three there. But I think, yeah, you look at you look at Dan's experience and just what he's done with Red Bull. And also even just like talking to him, just the way he talks about design and everything like that. You really get a good, I think, um, a good understanding of it from him and you can tell he's just so switched on knows what he's on about to have worked for so long with adrian newey as well that obviously does have an impact like that does sort of give um a good inspiration even in terms of sort of work ethic and the way to go about things so um yeah dan's been i think a fantastic asset for that team and i think that that was a very very shrewd signing from aston martin um not just for this year but for the long term i think that he's uh yeah he's uh, in a really good spot with them yeah Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that one. It's a team that we've often associated in the past during their Force India and Racing Point days, that they were a team that very much overperformed with the limited resources that they had. Is that theme still existent at Aston Martin or have we moved away from overachieving to a point where expectation starts to level out with what they're capable of? Um, This, I think, will probably be the last year that we say they're overachieving because yeah obviously the limited resources thing that's completely gone now it's gone it's now one of the the wealthiest teams in formula one in terms of the financial might behind it that's allowed for investment in in a whole new factory and a new wind tunnel and everything like that and that's the kind of thing you need to be a real front-running team so i think that this is this this year has been a surprise don't get me wrong but i think that if they'd had if they'd had that year where they were maybe top of the midfield as perhaps expected as as maybe i expected from them this year you'd say that was about in line with expectations and it would be next year you'd expect the steps where they are now so yeah i think that i think they are they are still overachieving they are and again it's it's sort of that reputation as you touch on through those force india racing point days of pound for pound maybe the best team in f1 in terms of 
operationally how they do things and getting the most out of a car and limited resources but um but yeah ultimately that's that's only going to go so far like as a team you don't want to be snaring the odd podiums maybe a win if you're lucky and like say that's the best thing ever you want more than that the hunger goes way beyond that and Lawrence Stroll from day one has made very clear that he wants to make this one of the greatest F1 teams there ever was and he's putting a lot behind that and I think that as we move into next year and the year after it's it's the five-year plan there was always a five-year plan to make this a championship winning operation we're in year three now years four and five you've got to think that yeah they're going to be in that kind of that kind of territory and um, I think it's going to be interesting how they perform but yeah, this is probably the last year that we can talk about Aston Martin or Team Silverstone, I guess is the best way to describe them as maybe being these um, plucky underdogs because, uh, yeah, things are, are definitely changing there. But they have to change because that's how you turn it into a winning operation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And I think that's important because over the years, we've often talked about which of the midfield teams are in the best place to move into the upper echelons of the F1 hierarchy, challenge the big three in Red Bull, Mercedes and Ferrari. And so far, I think the likely candidates that we've cited for a fair few years now have been Alpine, formerly Renault and McLaren. And in Alpine right now, using the Enstone factory that Renault obviously once occupied, uh, and still do to a certain degree as well, their resources, obviously, whilst pretty good, compared to those big three teams, are quite limited. And McLaren as well, over the years, have always been a team with a rich history in F1. But I think it's fair to say, Luke, over the last 15 years, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, the resources they have, whilst they are still very, very good, in terms of them being cutting edge, they have been left behind by those bigger three teams over that time. And they are starting to play catch up right now. With Aston Martin, they're moving into, well, they've moved into a new factory just recently. You mentioned the five-year plan, the unlimited resource that Lawrence Stroll has invested into this team and wants to commit to this team going forward to turn them into a world championship winning team. Are we finally seeing what the blueprint is for a midfield team that has aspirations and ambition? Because they all have the same ambition. They're not just there to turn up. But are we finally seeing what that blueprint looks like if you want to turn a team formerly Racing Point and Force India that had limited resources and did the best they could with what they had to now becoming that championship winning team that can compete for all the top honours in F1 with the likes of Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes? Yeah, I think that it's been... I, I think the way that Aston Martin have gone about it is how you, you, you would. I think that if you, again, if you had the right resources and team structure and stuff in place I think that it's always very clear that yeah you need a and I'm sure we'll get onto this when we talk about Honda you need a works partner you need your own wind tunnel you need to be doing your own um sort of like gearbox and stuff like that and the message from Aston Martin right the way through the early part this year was they didn't feel limited at all by the Mercedes partnership and they were still getting good sort of um they're still getting what they needed out of that partnership but I think that 
as time goes on, you kind of realise that, yeah, being a customer team, it doesn't quite work in the same kind of way as maybe you want to. There are certain limitations that do ultimately influence the design of the car. And as we go into 26, the integration of that power unit into the car is going to, that's going to be really important. So I think there is that sort of realisation of that. I think that, yeah, with like with McLaren, for example, obviously they when COVID hit, had some financial ups and downs and they finally got the sort of um, investment and building blocks in place to be able to to get up to speed and get the resources and get their facilities back sort of where they need to be if they want to be an F1 front running team. And I think that, yeah, there is that there is that understanding that, yeah, you kind of you have to keep up like ultimately nowadays. It's not good enough saying, well, oh, well, we were great five years ago. We can just sort of do things the way we've always done it, because that's that's the most dangerous thing you can say. Like you need to be keeping up with where F1 is going and how the sport is developing. So I think it is. Um, yeah, it's it's just been it's been interesting with how quickly it's all happened for Aston Martin. But I think that it's um it maybe is a little bit different in terms of when you have a single figure, Lawrence Stroll, being able to run the team and say, right, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to invest and everything. Whereas the more complex structures in terms of Alpine with like Renault and how that setup works and um, with McLaren as well, like there, it's a little bit more intricate in terms of sort of what maybe shareholders want, what maybe certain investment groups want as well. So um, yeah, I think that, I think it's it's shown all of them basically it can be done and I think that the belief maybe was that as they get their facilities modernized and as the cost cap begins to bite a little bit more over time this sort of convergence would happen and you would see the midfield teams able to take that step forward and I think you look at Alpine this year for example they they've been looking pretty solid at points like Ocon getting the podium in Monaco fantastic but I think what Aston have done has shown really that, yes, it is possible very, very quickly, which has maybe surprised quite a few people. Um, but it's for all of the midfield teams, they're, they're the message that they're giving is that it's uh, a good sign that a team like Aston Martin can do that. It's a sign basically they can do it as well if they can get everything correct. Yeah, and I think we often you know, we often take a negative view to entities that like to just throw money at the problem and expect to be successful. I think that kind of derives from other sports where there's a sense of injustice where one entity may have a lot more resources as another, whether rightly or wrongly, and they end up being successful. And there's an expectation that comes with that. In Formula One, it's a bit different. Everybody's trying to throw money at this problem. And eventually, in a meritocracy, one team is going to get it right and the other nine are going to have to lick their wounds and throw more money at this problem and try to do better this following season. With the comparison to Alpine with Aston Martin, and and I mean this respectfully with Alpine, I've often felt since winning the world championship in 05 and 06, they've always been a team that have always talked up a big game, talked up their ambition and promised big things. But very rarely have they ever been really close to living up to that. And I almost feel sometimes that comes from not necessarily an arrogant stance, but a position where they claim that they're doing the best that they can. So automatically that must be, that must mean that they have to be successful when the reality is, Luke, everybody's doing the same thing. They're all working as hard as they can, but there are those that invest more and they put more in. And at the end of the day, the more that you put in, the more you get out. And I feel like with Aston Martin, that is kind of the proof as to why they are doing well right now and look like they're on the rise. And a team like Alpine, as good as they are doing, they seem destined to be the best of the midfield and perhaps no better unless something changes in that philosophy. I think with, with Alpine, I think that, again, the Aston 
example I think does show what is possible in terms of making that step forward and being able to 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 um to advance. And I think with Alpine, it's it's been a funny period for that team ever since the, the brace of titles in 05 and 06 in terms of Renault were uh, out and then in, then out, then in. And I think now that it's very clear how Renault wants to play it with that team in terms of it promoting the Alpine brand and really trying to build that kind of brand identity. And I think that it's um it's it's been interesting how the team has kind of embraced that as well. And I think it's maybe changed perceptions a little bit. I, I remember sort of back end of the 2010s that I was talking to some people and they said, yeah, Renault are the team we're really we're looking at and thinking, yeah, they could really be the challengers. And obviously the signing of Daniel Ricciardo, that was a, a big, big thing. And I think that his decision to then leave after only two years and join McLaren, that maybe did sort of raise some question marks as well about, well, like, where is that team really going then? Like if he's been there two years and is happy with another sidestep basically to another upper midfield team, what does that say about Alpine? But I think that, I think they, I think Lauren Rossi, I think this year has been very clear with them. He's made very, very evident that he's not happy with elements of their performance. I think that last year they did well to, to get fourth in the championship. It exceeded honestly my expectations beginning of last year. I, I, um, I, I, said they would finish quite low down in the championship, which then both Lauren Rossi and uh, Alan Pemain, the sporting director, actually came in Abu Dhabi to remind me that I had said they would finish so low in the championship. But um, I was very happy to shake their hands and say, yep, I got that wrong. Well done, guys, because it was, uh, I think it was a really good season from them in the end. I think Ocon and Alonso together were fantastic. And I think they've got a great driver lineup. They do. But I think that, yeah, I think for now, it is that sort of step forward you need to try and make. And they are the... We, I mentioned about sort of like works backing and that's what you need in terms of doing your own engine and everything like that. Alpine, that that's a works team. That's got that's got Renault backing. It is they're not supplying any other power. They're not supplying the power unit to any other team. Sorry. So there is um they've got they've got what they need basically. It's just about executing it, and making it happen. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see how that team kind of does keep up and catch up because. Again, Aston Martin, it shows what you can do. It shows the step forward you can make. And I think for Alpine, there might be a, a sense maybe from those at the top saying, well, if they can do it, why aren't we? Why can't we? Yeah. And I think if I could put a word to it, and this is coming from a fan that has no will knowledge in terms of the inside track or anything like that. So, you know, anyone from Alpine listening in by chance, don't take what I'm about to say as gospel because it won't get you very far. But I think if I could sum it up in a word, it's ruthlessness. And for me, that's how you describe Lawrence Stroll as, uh, you know, as a leader in this team and obviously as an investor in this team. And we've seen over the last few years, Aston Martin at their car launch, Lawrence Stroll does that formal address to everyone as if he's the president of the United States, for example. And as a Canadian, I'm not sure how that goes down with him. So I'll say that respectfully. But you know, they come across, they address the season, how prideful they are with the new car, what their expectations and ambitions are. And until recently, I think it's fair to say Aston Martin haven't quite reached those standards yet. This year is a very different story. But as a result, year on year, since uh, they came in, was it 2021? I think it was. They've made changes and they've brought in new people. As I said, we had Otmar Jaffner leading the team. He was removed. Mike Crack was brought in. Martin Whitmarsh was brought in. As we said, Dan Fallows was brought in as well. And the driver lineup has changed also in that time. Obviously, Fernando Alonso replaced Vettel, who, you know, could have stayed on if he wanted to another year. But overall, Luke, I just feel that there's an 
aura of ruthlessness about Aston Martin with Lawrence Stroll's backing that they will be successful no matter what. They are inevitable. They have that plan in place and they're executing that. For me, I think, as I said, I think if you're going to describe Aston Martin right now, how they are getting to where they are, they're just being ruthless and they're leaving no stone unturned and it almost seems inevitable that they will be successful. Yeah, I think it's it's um, Stroll, Lawrence Stroll's sort of obsession with with winning and with being the best and something that he's touched on as being evident throughout his business career and then when he came into racing he made very clear that he's not he's not in racing to finish second he doesn't want to be the second best team he wants to be the best and it was at the the car launch he um uh, this year i remember him saying uh, when when i get excited about uh, something i'm passionate and when i'm passionate i win and it was a real like real um mission statement i felt and it's it's perfect fodder for many an article i've written since been like oh and lawrence stroll said this back in, in in february because it is that kind of it's that kind of quote that i think really does stick with you and i think that when when aston martin is a race winning team because as I, I I agree that I think they are inevitable in terms of this will be a successful Formula One team. It's taken a huge step forward this year, but I think there is much much more to come. Then uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll look back on that and say yeah, Stroll he's very very serious about what he does. He's not in F one uh, just to make up the numbers whatsoever. And we've seen that commitment through the building of the new factory, through the signings of Sebastian Vettel, of Fernando Alonso, and I think it's been. I, I I think that yeah to your point earlier about people maybe in other sports like I mean you look at Man City for example in football and you say look they they're winning everything and okay it's a very good team but how that team was put together in terms of the investment and everything and to have such a war chest to be able to dip into does maybe skew things a little bit in F1 yeah it's kind of always been the case that the big teams and the most financially well off teams have been the the toughest to beat and have been the best but I think it's it's been really cool to have Aston Martin thrown into that mix and to say look we're going to build an all new factory and the like I've been there um for a couple of visits uh not but not before it fully opened because that was only uh last couple of weeks or so and it um yeah it was really it, you can just see the way they're going about things is so so serious and it is so um it's just so impressive what they're building there and I think it is real testament to Lawrence Stroll's ambition and the way he wants to go about things to uh, to make it all happen i've got to ask while i've got you here luke what's it like to interview lawrence stroll is there a aura and a presence about him is it intimidating i've not actually spoken to no i saw i've spoken to lawrence stroll once and it was very briefly when i was introduced to him and it was very much off record he's got an excellent handshake i can say that much which is always a sign of a, a good business i can man. imagine he's got um, a very firm handshake <laughs> <laughs> but he um yeah he's um look he like you see him walking around the grid and everything like that and there is i think there is a uh, there is a definite presence about him and the way he does things and i remember being on the grid in in bahrain and i watched fernando alonso pull his car into the pit box and uh, as they do and then obviously everyone sort of crowds around and they um uh sorry not the pit box the grid slot on the grid and all the mechanics stuff come around and start to like do what they need to do with the car, get the tire blankets on and put it up on the jacks. And uh, Alonso got out of his car. He steps out of the car and the first person there to meet him was Lawrence Stroll. And they had this big hug and a very quick chat, obviously, which n- none of which I could hear because I, I wasn't going to A, eavesdrop and B, be able to tell and everything like that. But um, that, that again, just stuck with me that I think that was a real like Lawrence Stroll in that moment must have thought, hey, look, I've got a car that... I- where did they qualify in Bahrain? I think maybe fourth or fifth in Bahrain, but he knew I've got a good car. I've got a good driver. And that 
to him must have been such a sweet moment beginning of the season to be like this is the project I'm building this is what I want to get in place and to have um to have uh yeah have that kind of moment I think that was really cool yeah absolutely and I think you know when it comes to the drivers obviously you know a lot of people listening to this will say oh well what was the relationship like with Seb well it, it goes in stages to how these plans work and you know Seb was a great driver but I think towards the twilight years of his F1 career that desire started to fade away after many attempts at Ferrari of trying to recreate what his idol Michael Schumacher did it just never really worked out with Alonso there is that burning desire despite his age and despite what he's achieved in the sport it almost feels like the man is going to continue to be in F1 until he's eventually successful once again and Lawrence Stroll sees that in Fernando so I feel like there is a, a mutual rapport between the two of them where you know you have a driver with his own presence and, and ruthlessness in his own right with a team boss a team owner that has that same level of desire and when the two clash it, it just works so well assuming that they're on the same wavelength yeah I think it is a very it's a very well matched operation between driver and team I think that everything is very much on the same page and I think that when it when it was announced on that that Monday in Budapest I, I was out for a very lovely what I thought was gonna be a very quiet morning and like I'd done all my work and I was like oh summer break I'm gonna fly home tomorrow I was having my my breakfast and then an email drops Fernando Alonso to join Aston Martin and yeah from that moment I was like this is this is going to be a story and we we saw that with everything that followed with the the driver market and the knock-on effects over the um, over last uh, summer of course but long term you think yeah it was the kind of move that really the more you thought about it did make complete sense because Stroll he will not rest until he wins Fernando Alonso will not rest until he wins so it's a very very good match and I think we're seeing really just the start of what they can achieve together and it's been a it's, it's been a really cool story for f1 this year it's been a um yeah a, a real fascinating dynamic there it really has and i think it's quite rare in f1 seasons and and i agree that a lot of it can come down to what's happening in the main story of the championship but it's not very often that you see perhaps a subplot story like this at aston martin dominate the headlines when the reality is we should be talking about how dominant Red Bull and Max Verstappen are. But in some regards, because of how good they are at the moment, it's very easy for us to be more interested in the, in the Aston Martin story and the Fernando Alonso story. You know, it's it's strange how that happens, but that's sports sometimes for you. But um, I wanted to talk about the, the fact that you moved on to that point actually quite appropriately. And I have to ask, Luke, obviously having visited the new factory that they've recently moved into, what are your thoughts on the factory? And do you think, in your opinion, they have the resource now to compete with those big three teams going forward? Uh, yeah, the factory, it's its very, very impressive. I mean, it, yeah, you take a, a car blanche, basically a blank sheet and say, build an F1 factory and you'd probably build it exactly like that. It's uh, its a real, real impressive building. I think it is, it's, it, it still feels like a, and again, I say this from having visited there when it's, like very much still in the design phase and building phase so i've not been there since they moved in but you could already see how it feels like a formula one factory like they they sort of point out where the race phase are going to be and where the team offices are and everything like that and um it's very 
it feels very functional, which is very, very important when it comes to making a factory work. And it's even little things like having a design office where there aren't people sort of in, in separate places and that you need to be able to, you need to go to a separate building or a separate room to go and talk to the person you need to chat to. If you're all in one place all together in a nice open plan office, it kind of does help with that. And um, I remember, um, I can't remember who from Aston, it might have been, might have been Mike Crack, saying about um, even just like water cooler conversations. If you've got a couple of designers just having to both making a cup of tea together at the same time and say, oh, have you thought about this maybe? And it's that kind of, um, it's that kind of culture that I think is, it goes such a long way in Formula One. You look at Mercedes and the strong team culture that they've really created there. And I think it's that kind of thing that Aston is trying to put together as well. So yeah, everyone I've spoken to at Aston is there. They're excited about the new factory and most of them obviously have had their, 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 their first a few days in there now and they're very happy to be in there and it's uh, it's a gradual process there's three buildings there i think one of them's the wind tunnel um so this is building one basically that is now open and they moved into and building two building three the wind tunnel are going to come uh, i believe sort of over the next 18 months or so they'll be finished so it will still be a little bit of time until you say the factory is like fully complete and they're fully moved in but they are definitely um yeah definitely taking the steps towards being a it's it's the kind of facility that the top Formula One teams need and again they had a blank canvas and have I think made something really really special so it is um yeah it is really really cool yeah I know I couldn't agree more and from what I'd read obviously I'm glad you mentioned the wind tunnel situation because I think a lot of people probably underestimated um how significant it has to have your own wind tunnel especially one working as well I think you know McLaren was still using the one uh, that Toyota used to have uh, in Cologne for many many years and they've I think they've only recently been able to get on top of that or at least you know not in the short term but with Aston Martin I think a lot of people cited that now that the factory is ready and open for the most part that they would have a guaranteed strong car in 2024 does it feel more likely that this is a process that is still going to take a few more years perhaps 2026 is still that key date where we'll start to see a fully working Aston Martin, the uh, the product of all their resources themselves, not having to share Mercedes wind tunnel, for example, a car that could compete for a world championship. Oof. Um, yeah, I think I think twenty six is probably the year that will be earmarked by Aston as being the first year it's fully on its own two feet with the Honda partnership and everything like that. But I think that. I think what they've been able to achieve this year kind of suggests that maybe they don't need to wait that long. Maybe they can take another step forward next year and be in that kind of Red Bull territory and maybe get in the fight potentially for a title. Um, Fernando Alonso, he was asked in Monaco about his championship chances. And we know realistically that, that there is there aren't any because it's all going the way of Red Bull and that car is so, so dominant. And at best, Aston is going to pick up maybe a win or two this season. But I think he, even he in Monaco say so he said, I, I keep thinking about it until it's over. Like, I'm not going to rest and think like, oh, like this isn't going to happen. And that speaks to his mentality. And I think that it's something maybe going into the next couple of years that will still be there, I think. But yeah, they're not going to just say, well, we're on hold till 2026 now. They're not going to have this brilliant season and be it second or third or fourth or wherever they end up in the championship. So that's our ceiling now. Well done, boys. Let's just wait until 26 until we can really fight for a title. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what further progress they can make. But I think that this year's kind of proven that they've got what they have in place already is very, very good. 
And I think that the arrival of Honda and getting the factory and the wind tunnel and everything online, that is only going to, I think, um, that's only going to take them that other step forward in, in 26. But I think, yeah, they're still in really, really good shape even prior to then. Yeah. And speaking of Honda, of course, we have to talk about their return to Formula One. Are you surprised to hear that Honda are coming back into F1 in 2026 with Aston Martin? Uh, no, not really. I think that we saw, I think it was surprising when they announced in 2020 that they were pulling the plug and that was very, very sudden. But I think that what we then saw after that uh, in the what was meant to be the final full Honda season in 21 and obviously that was such a, a um, sort of turbulent year for Formula 1 and such an intense title fight. And I think that the Honda exit kind of got overridden in terms of being a big storyline towards the end of that season. But we kind of saw after then Honda was like, oh, well, we'll, we'll keep being like a, a technical partner. We'll keep like doing some support from Secura. And then it was, oh, well, we'll keep the Honda Racing Corporation logos on the car. And then it was, oh, well, no, we'll put the full Honda logo on the Red Bull car. And you could see the kind of shift in thinking I think was coming. And I think that it was a mixture of changes within Honda, but also F1 really going down this more electrification, sustainable fuels route that is so appealing to manufacturers. Audi coming in 2026, the um, obviously interest from from Porsche at one point that um, faded with the with the Red Bull deal. But I think for Honda, that kind of it, it showed them what there was long term, and I think that is why they said, "Look, we want to go back into this fully now." So I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a surprise. I think that yeah, if you'd have asked that question in early 20 sort of 21 something like that when we knew their exit was coming and before we really knew where f1 was going i think that yeah you would say there's no way honda are coming back but they've um yeah they've got this history of being quite in and out of formula one and very on and off but um yeah from what they said they said the rules now look like a very good place for the long term as well so it does seem encouraging that honda is going to be back and probably back for good yeah i mean at the time I thought honestly at the time it seemed a little bit strange given how good that they how good they were how far they'd come from those dismal days at McLaren where Fernando Alonso famously was calling it a GP2 engine and he couldn't wait to be rid of it and then they go to a point where they're successful with Red Bull in 2021 and beyond that as well but of course you know they're not able to get the credit for that and for me I always thought them leaving F1 I totally understood the reasons for it they wanted to pursue and put more resource into the electrification of their uh, engine cars on the road car industry and, and other formats as well in racing. And perhaps that decision was taken a bit hastily because they weren't aware or perhaps they didn't appreciate where F1 was going in terms of the increase of electrification in future power units, for example, as we're going to see in 2026, there's a huge emphasis on that. And of course, that definitely is going to be akin to Honda's interest. But playing devil's advocate here, Luke, I can't help but feel that Honda have kind of been brought back to F1 and in a way they've always been looking for a way back into F1 for a few years now purely and simply because firstly not only are they denied the credit that they deserve in in terms of the record books for their contribution to Red Bull success and perhaps for the next few years that will continue but what's worse is that their intellectual property, their equipment that Red Bull have obviously optimised for their own powertrains and, and Honda have played a part in that as well it almost feels like there's going to be a forge sticker on that as well and it almost feels like we can't have Ford taking the credit for all of our hard work so we need to come back into F1 and do something about that I mean what were your thoughts on that I think the 
I think for brands of manufacturers, they always want to be an F1 to win and they always want that. Um, they always want that credibility and that, that, that credit, obviously. And I mean, you look at Honda's withdrawal in 2008 and then the team becomes brawn and then dominates the championship with, with um, an incredible F1 car and that eventually becomes Mercedes. And you can look at that and say that was a, a massive own goal from Honda, not just to hang on for one more year. But so many of these decisions are taken sort of in, 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 in boardrooms and by manufacturers who are focused more on the road car business and F1 really to them is a, a technological and a marketing tool. That is, that's the big thing about it. They don't, really for them it's not about how many championships are we winning and that is obviously such a big part of it but it is really about the um i guess sort of all the wider returns that they're getting from being in formula one and i think that i think for honda that the return i think it gives ultimately gives them what they need it gives them the marketing boom that you don't get from any other racing championship in the world it gives them the technological kind of development that you don't get from any other racing championship in the world that ultimately does seep through to their their, their road car industry um, particularly with this electrification push so i think that yeah it kind of it adds up to honda on a couple of levels that maybe a few years ago it perhaps didn't in quite the same way i think that yeah i, I think the red bull success i mean it probably Again, it, it was all part of it. They probably think, oh, man, that is really what is a Honda engine in there. But it's branded as a Rebel powertrains engine now. And for them, that that yeah, that must hurt a little bit. But I think that you've got to be pragmatic about these things and say, look, the decision's been taken and it's done. And um, going into 26 with Aston Martin, it's a really exciting new partnership. And I think that for them, seeing what Aston are doing, it does sort of point to a... Um, a very potent combination quite possibly and an exciting one maybe we will get uh, Fernando Alonso world championship with a Honda engine after all mm. but, uh, <laughs> that's certainly the dream assuming Alonso sticks around till 2026 and I don't see any reason why he wouldn't um, but we'll have to wait and see talking about works teams you mentioned that earlier on and with this Honda deal exclusive to Aston Martin this is kind of the final jigsaw in the puzzle which allows them to become an official works team as F1 knows it in your mind, Luke, is that key? Is that an essential ingredient for a team to be considered a world championship challenger? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think it is. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, the integration of the power unit into the chassis is going to be such a big thing from 2026. I think that we saw in the early part of the B6 hybrid engine era when Mercedes had the class engine how well that set them up for the years that followed. It took eight years before anyone else won another world championship. So it's it does show that those early gains can be so, so crucial. And I think that for Aston Martin, I think to get this kind of partnership, I think it kind of gives them control of their own destiny, which is something that Christian Horner always said about the formation of Rebel Powertrains. And obviously has since said that had they known Honda would be coming back, then they probably wouldn't have done it. But hey, that's the way it is. But you do have that ability to, yeah, with, with Red Bull, for example, everything will be done on site. It'll be that the, the engine team and the chassis team can work very much hand in hand. And I think that you just have complete freedom and flexibility to go about things the way that you want to. And um, even when it comes, even things like your um, fuel and lubricant supplier, it's like ultimately, yeah, certain suppliers will work best with certain power unit partners so to be able to say that we want to work with uh, in the case of aston martin with aramco and get stuff that is perfectly made for that honda engine 
it all works out. So I think that it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to give them an advantage. And I think that it is really one of the big question marks is whether we do end up with this kind of two-tier Formula One, whether you do see the customer teams who, um, yeah, it's looking like it'll be McLaren, Williams, Alfa Romeo, and well, or whatever, Sauber, future Audi. So not actually not even them, sorry, Audi obviously are coming in. So yeah, you've got what, McLaren, uh, well, it'd be Salba till 26, won't it? Salba till 26, And then yeah. there was rumours so, about Alfa Romeo partnering with Haas as a title partnership, yeah, which could make yeah. sense, given the Ferrari yeah. links as well. Yeah, I think it's... Um, but it, it kind of points to, do we end up with this two-tier Formula 1 where it's like the work teams in one end and the customer teams at the other end? And I don't think it maybe would be quite that extreme. But I do think, like, if you're a McLaren, I think it's really important for them to long-term look at could they get a work seal with someone. But right now it kind of seems like most of the options have gone and it's that they are probably going to remain a, a, a customer team looking like renewing with Mercedes, uh, according to Andrea Stella. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that, but for Aston Martin, I think that it was absolutely the, the next step they needed to take. And I think it is the final step where you say you've got, a works engine that can perfectly integrate with a car. You've got an incredible driver in Fernando Alonso, assuming he's still racing in 2026. If he's not, I'm sure drivers will be banging down the doors to try and get that seat because it's such an exciting project. You've got a new factory, you've got a wind tunnel on site, you've got good financial support behind it. All the stars are really aligning for that Aston Martin team. Yeah, and I think one thing that Aston Martin will be well aware of as to why... Uh, Red Bull was so successful with Honda where McLaren wasn't in comparison is that e- even though they were, it was a work steel, they were able to incorporate the needs of the engine manufacturers and, you know, tailor their car to suit their needs, whereas McLaren didn't really do that. So Aston Martin, they'll be well aware of how to incorporate that. They've been incorporating Mercedes parts into their car for such a long time now. And, you know, recently they've made that work going down the Red Bull ph- philosophy and, and putting their own spin onto it. So I see no reason why putting a Honda in the back of the Aston Martin isn't going to make them do great things um, in 2026 and beyond. So it will be exciting to see. Um, I I did want to talk about the drivers, the effect that they're going to have on this one. We'll start with Fernando Alonso, obviously. Five podiums so far this season. I think the only driver with more podiums, obviously, Max Verstappen at this point in time. Third in the Drivers' Championship. Easily the best driver on the grid right now, in my opinion, uh, outside of... Max Verstappen and Sir Lewis Hamilton to a degree as well. How critical has Fernando Alonso been to Aston Martin's progress this season? And how impressed have you been by Fernando Alonso? At his ripe old age of 40, was it 41, 42 now? He's still driving, driving like a guy at 21 years of age with the whole world in front of him. Yeah, it's incredible. It's been um, it's been such a cool story, I think, this year. I think that it's always been there with Fernando as well. And like, he obviously went through his struggles with McLaren and then he went away for a couple of years and it was interesting seeing how like doing Indy and doing uh, Le Mans and WEC really did sort of ignite a bit of a fire in him but I think that deep down Formula One he knew that was where he wanted to be that's where he wanted to be successful and uh, yeah he just he's just relentless like I remember when we went to the Aston Martin factory for their their car launch and that was it was kind of because uh, we had McLaren I think launched that morning I want to say and then in the afternoon evening was the Aston Martin launch. So we did both in one day and uh, went up to Aston Martin, got there maybe like four o'clock, something like that. And we had various bits of media and stuff like that. And um, one of the one of the um, designers said that, yeah, Fernando this morning, like he's got a full day of media ahead of him. He was still in this morning to go and talk to the design team, then go in the simulator and like 
just he's an absolute animal. He's relentless, and I think we've seen that come to the fore this year. So he, um, yeah, he's he's massively important. I think that it's not only his quality as a racing driver, which is undeniable, but the mentality as well he has, where it's again similar to Lawrence Stroll, it is relentless, it's obsessional, it is I'm here to win and I will not rest until I do win. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he's just such a such an elite driver. He really, really is. And I think it's been nice to see him have the car where he can probably sort of show that this year. And he's clearly having a lot of fun as well. You hear him over the radio and he's, um, yeah, he's enjoying life, which is, is really, really cool to see. Yeah. And, you know, I think I remember seeing the other day, it was 10 years since his last win in F1 um, with Ferrari, of course. And, and I can't help but feel that that's probably the last time in his career up until now where he was actually at a team that had the same level of drive and ambition that he had. And, and it brings out the both best in both parties, of course, wasn't quite successful at Ferrari, unfortunately, but uh, maybe it'll be different at Aston Martin. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, a, a quick note on Stroll. I... I'm sure a lot of people have mentioned this already on social media or in articles. Is Lance Stroll good enough to be on merit in this Aston Martin and match the trajectory that they are currently going in right now? How have you judged this season for Lance Stroll? Has he underperformed or, as Fernando Alonso put it, has he just been unlucky? I think think it's a mixture. I think that one thing to bear in mind is that Lance did have that cycling accident before the start of the season and raced through those first few races with um, uh, obviously his, his wrist still recovering from, from the injuries. And it's um, that's something that, yeah, you've, you've got to really bear in mind. I think that does have an impact on it. And um, I think that, I think with Lance, I think that, yeah, there's been a few races where he has been unlucky. Definitely. I think you look at Jeddah, for example, he pulled that brilliant move on science, on the opening lap around the uh, the outside of, uh, of 1010, I believe. And then, uh, and then yeah, had to retire. And otherwise he was looking pretty good to, for a top five finish. And then uh, other races like Monaco, for example, they thought they could get through on one set of tyres in Q1. Um, and uh, then that left him on the back foot. And it's little things like that where, yeah, it maybe didn't quite align as it should have. But I think also you do say, yeah, there are times when he he has underperformed, like um, Baku, for example. I I remember sort of thinking, okay, he's driven a pretty good race here, and then I looked at the race trace between him and Fernando Alonso, and the rate at which Stroll was dropping back from Alonso was it was quite it was quite a lot. So it does it does maybe show the difference between the two drivers. Um, but I think that yeah, ultimately that team for the long term is being built up to give Lance the opportunity to fight for wins for championships. Fernando Lance has been quite clear in that as well, saying that he wants to be able to leave the team in a position, leave Lance in a position where he can do that. So, um, yeah, I think that I think Lance will know himself as well, areas he does need to up his game, absolutely. But I think, like Spain, for example, I think was a, a solid weekend. I think that, yeah, he qualified well. Speaking to him in the pen afterwards, like he was really, he was in a really good mood. You could really tell that he was very sort of like bantering back and forth with us and stuff. And that was, that was quite nice. And I think that he'll, um, He'll know that really in Spain, where they finished sixth and seventh, that's probably their ceiling for that race because I think that they were simply the fourth quickest car on race day. So, um, yeah, he'll know the need to improve, absolutely. Like, no one in the team, I think, will say that Lance has been absolutely, like, only unlucky this season. Um, But I think it is a more nuanced argument than just saying he's not been good enough this year because I think there is a little more into it. 
Yeah, I think we do have to take stock with Lance's performance this season. As you mentioned, the injury and he's had some bad luck with reliability, but there is obviously a pace deficit there that needs to be addressed. And throughout this season right now, Aston Martin doing incredibly well. The question hovering over them right now is, can they develop this car to match with the development pace of Mercedes and, and maybe even Ferrari when eventually they get their act together uh, on a difficult start for 2023. And right now, as brilliant as Fernando Alonso has been, he does need his teammates to back him up in the constructors' standards. That's why Mercedes are currently ahead of them right now. They've not had a great car compared to Aston Martin, but they are getting their act together and their drivers are doing phenomenally well with what they have. And, and even Ferrari, with all the problems they've had, their two drivers, when they have been able to get points, they're still contributing every so often. So that's going to be a concern for Aston Martin. I think ultimately the question is, Luke, regarding Lance Stroll, is Lawrence Stroll, his father, has been incredibly ruthless, as I've mentioned already, throughout every single facet of this team, except for one, and that's with his son. Is there a point in your mind where if Lance is not able to live up to the expectation and potential that his father has in him, Fernando Alonso seems to have in him from what we hear on the team radio, if he's not able to live up to that, does he need to make a difficult decision with him as well? I think that's going to be the, yeah, for the future, that's going to be the interesting question. Like, again, we'll only, I think, have proper, uh, proper reading of that when we look at maybe... For example, with the Constructors' Championship, if you, if at the end of the season, Aston Martin just missed out on second place, and you can say, well, that's because Lance was too far behind Fernando in terms of the points that he was returning, then that obviously does does raise a question mark. Absolutely. That was the whole reason McLaren got rid of Daniel Ricciardo was because he wasn't on Lando Norris's level. And the team said that is going to cost us Constructors' Championship positions, which ultimately costs us money. So it's not, it's not good. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think honestly with the way the team has sort of been coming together and again with what Fernando's saying I think that yeah realistically it's not it's not going to be a consideration anytime soon at all I think that it's um yeah it'll only be when maybe those those times do come along maybe when that moment does come when you say ah actually they would have finished a position higher in the standings had Lance pulled his weight more in terms of the points that you would maybe ask that but I think that yeah it's um I, I think I think we'll see. I think the, the other thing to remember is that Lance hasn't had like a quality, quality car, quality, quality car quite like this in the same way. So I think that it's going to be interesting how he kind of develops with the car as well, and like what more comes out of his driving style and everything. But um, yeah, I think that it's. I, I know it's a question that a lot of people have. I think it's maybe a little bit too early to jump too far ahead with it, but I think it's uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be an interesting dynamic and storyline for Aston Martin's story moving forward. Yeah, and I think as the closer we head towards 2026, when we have a bit more data, assuming Aston Martin are able to stay in this group that they're currently finding themselves in and make progress going forward, we're going to see a lot of situations that other teams change with other drivers, top drivers that are keeping an eye on Aston Martin, probably an eye on their own contract situation, thinking, oh, there's a potential spot for me there. That may influence that decision. If Lance is not able to drive at a level or improve at such a rate where if Aston Martin do have a car that's capable of winning a championship, he can put himself in a position where he can actually deliver on the expectations of that car. Yeah, I think that, I think that's, again, that's really to be seen. I think that's why we've got to just wait and see how that kind of, um, 
how, how that really unfolds for Lance. I think that, yeah, he's, he's okay, he's in his, what, sixth or seventh season of F1. He's still only, what, 20 to 24, 25, something like that. So he's, um, yeah, I think... I think they're all questions that will come down the line. I think that it's it's going to be, that is going to be a, a good storyline to follow in terms of how does Aston Martin sort of weigh this up and like in terms of both drivers contributing and pulling their weight, like how does that balance go moving forward? Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's still very, it's still very early days, I think. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting story, though. It's it's kind of dynamic and stuff that yeah, you know, it gets people talking, and it's obviously something that I think is going to be um, yeah, definitely uh, discussed. I think moving forward. Yeah, absolutely agree with you, and I certainly can't wait to see how it all pans out. Um, I mean, that's great. Obviously, before we let you go, Luke, we've got to ask you about uh, your book coming out at some point in the future. Um, could you let us know a bit more about that? Yeah, it's um, it's been a project that's been in the works for a little while now. It's called On the Grid. Uh, it's about life inside Formula One. It's going to be telling sort of stories past and present about about the sort of cultural history of the sport and where its origins came from and um, where it is in the modern day as well. I think I really want this to be a, a sort of snapshot and pulse check of where the sport is uh, in in the present day. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it, working with uh, Harper Via in the US and Simon & Schuster in the UK, two fantastic publishers who have uh, really shown a lot of support for the project as well, which is really, really cool. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. I've done, um, it'll, I've, I've done one book before, which was a very short, history of Porsche and that was that was good fun but that was more road car focused uh, but this would be my first Formula One book so yeah I'm um, I'm excited to get into it I'm excited to um, I think be telling some of these stories and uh, yeah I think it's it's just a real cool project to be working on it's a it's a sport as we touched on at the top of this it's a sport that I love to pieces it's the job that I love to pieces and to be able to I think convey that and tell that sort of that love for this sport in a book is going to be uh yeah it's a real real dream project i must say so uh, yeah i'm very excited to be getting going with it yeah and i'm certainly looking forward to reading it when it does come out so uh no fantastic stuff um luke before we uh let you go once and for all um where can our followers check you out on social media for all the latest uh gossip and news in f1 from your side uh, I'm at Luke Smith F1 on pretty much everything. I think um, I, I I downloaded TikTok. I did a couple of TikToks, and one one of them got a lot of views. But I don't really TikTok very often otherwise. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, Twitter is my main thing to be honest. Like Instagram is mainly me moaning about media sense coffee and how terrible it is, or um, talking about my track runs and stuff. So uh, yeah, maybe if you want more of uh, what is Luke doing with his life, Instagram is the way to go for news and stuff probably best on twitter but yeah at luke smith have one that's where to find me well that's all the good stuff i mean i always am interested to find out which circuit has the best coffee at hand and of course um as a bit of an amateur runner myself i'm always quite uh interested by your journeys i've actually seen quite a lot of that and uh how's that been for you uh, doing track runs yeah fun it's cool it's um this year like i'm I've run every single track I've been to so far every and I've done every race so far this season so it's I'm quite interested to see come the end of the year how many of the full 22 races I guess we end up with now will um will I've actually run the circuit as well but yeah it's cool and it's also something that it was only when I started doing it and people were like oh I wish I could do that I'm like oh but it's not an open thing to the public like it you, that again you reminds you of what a privilege this job is at points even just the ability to say oh i'm gonna go and run spa this evening like that's that's a really cool thing so um yeah it's good fun i, I enjoy it it's probably one of my highlights of the race weekend is going for a, a track run 
Yeah, I mean, it looks amazing. And um, obviously, yeah, very jealous to get to do that. But of course, one thing I would be interested in, in hearing from you at some point, Luke, maybe next season might be easy to do it, is um, obviously you know how you have the performance indicators, the 100% to the fastest car and the Delta there. Might be interesting to see what your closest percentage to the Delta is for the fastest car on which circuit uh, throughout the yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. If you I have the time to do year, the maths. <laughs> yeah, last year, in, um, it's funny, in Zandvoort, I was uh, I ran the London Marathon last October, and uh, Zandvoort was, what, beginning of September, so I was right into, like, the, the thick of, like, you really upping your training. And um, one night I was like, I'm going to go run three laps. And that was only, like, 13, 14 kilometres, because it's quite a short lap. <laughs> only 13, but, um, 14 kilometres. There's <laughs> Mo but, Farah um, here. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but I, um, I, I ran it, and I was like, I, I was really, partly was thinking, if they're like, if there's a crazy first lap and there's like five retirements or something, I could say, oh, with my three laps completed, I would have finished 15th in the Dutch Grand Prix had I been in <laughs> Formula 1 Cup, which I'm obviously Brilliant. not. Um, in the end, it was a very quiet start, so I couldn't make that joke. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a cool it's a cool thing and um yeah it's nice to you do sort of compare it year on year in terms of like oh i was like 10 seconds quicker than i was last year so the upgrades are working and stuff it's um yeah it's cool it's good fun that's it there you go luke smith world champion 2040 if everyone starts <laughs> running but uh that's an episode for another time i think talking about drivers how fast they could run around these circuits but uh <laughs> i imagine pretty pretty quick but guys of course thank you so much for tuning in with that one and uh, if you enjoyed that make sure to like the video subscribe to the channel and uh, leave us a five-star review on your favorite pod platform we'd really appreciate that um but until then guys thanks for tuning in we'll be back for the canadian grand prix preview next week but until then take care and we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And remember, as always, if you're not first, you're probably DNF1. Take care. Podcast Network.